It is a high-stakes project that has cost taxpayers dearly, and we still don't know what the final price tag will end up costing us. That's right, it's rail. Senator Lorena Noy is vice chair of the Senate Transportation Committee. She's long been involved in the rail project, dating back to Governor Linda Lingle's administration, and she was involved in the plan to hike the excise tax to help fund the project. She was a big supporter of the public-private partnership for the train, and she joined us this morning to explain her position to finish the route to Ala Moana. Here's Senator Inouye. In the process of me being very active on our National Council of State Legislatures in transportation, that uh, I believe that the P3 project is the best for us. And I think at that time as well, what they should have done was really study what the P3s are about. They should have gone out to conferences. And I've been to about three or four um, conferences, national conferences, with regards to P3 projects, which applies to many other cities in the country. And well, it worked very well for them. You were a big supporter of the uh, public-private partnership. Oh, yeah. And, and reason, let me also share that with you in what we've learned over the years, and Andy knew that as, knows that as well because he came from the industry. The P3 projects, once a developer commits to a project, like I say, if they commit and saying they're going to be completing the last 10 miles more of, uh, is it 10 or 20, I think, uh, to complete going into Ala Moana, that they commit to that amount of money. So if they're saying it's going to cost $3 billion, they're fixed with that cost. What was your reaction when the contract uh, for PPP was canceled? Well, that was, that was the mayor. He made the decision. And the, and the board uh, agreed to that decision that, they, that Mayor Caldwell will not allow the, a P3 project. Uh, which was the biggest, I think that was the biggest downfall in this entire rail project, is denying a P3 project. And look what we're going to be doing with Aloha Stadium. Now that we're going to go into a P3 project because the state and, and the board uh, agrees and DAGS agrees that that's the best way to go. Given what's happened and where we sit now and knowing what you know about this rail project, uh, what's the complete, way forward? Go, complete the work down to Ala Moana. Don't cut it off at Middle Street. Another thing, too, is perhaps if we can look at another alignment and not go through the complete Middle Street, which is the, 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 the worst part of it, um, but I, I'd say continue on to Ala Moana and whether they modify the plans from Middle Street uh, and divert it to somewhere else. There's too many uh, obstacles on Middle Street. Do you think the FTA is going to agree to that? I doubt it if FTA would deny and not agree to completing the project, and several reasons. There's too much committed already to the project, and their forebearers already had agreed that they, they would support Hawaii into this rail project. And knowing now that we have President Biden and a great uh, congressional uh, team that I don't think they'd pull the plug. Well, I mean, they are cautioning, you know, Senator oh, Schatz yeah. is oh, cautioning. Yeah. Of course they're going to send they'll, a message. I guess they want, to, they want some accountability. They want some transparency. You were saying you have always been a staunch supporter of rail and you support it going all the way to Ala Moana. Sure. Now, another thing, too, is I, I don't think that there was ever a point in time when Andrew Robbins used to come in. And, and that's, that's one thing that I'd say for, for Andy, and I would say his predecessor. They've always briefed me as to what's happening and how they're moving. So as far as transparency, I would say uh, I, I don't think there was anything hidden from uh, others that needed to know what's going on, but uh, and Andy, as far as I'm concerned, was always up in front, uh, and we were all kept in, in touch, so I can't blame him for not doing that. Now, another thing, too, is that he made some tough decisions and recommendations, but the board didn't support him towards the end. But you believe it was a mistake to cancel the uh, public-private partnership? I agree. To cancel the P3, um, and you know what, too? Now, with regards to the um, Hitachi and those that 
already had been paid and, and did the project should be committed to take care of their mistakes. You're talking about the wheels and the frogs. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's also uh, apparently another problem that's emerged with birds that, have, uh, that are nesting, I think, along the guideway. You know, I'm kind of not surprised with encroachments uh, of the birds because we've had the same issue down at our GKI airport, a lot uh, going on at, at Lagoon Drive. And then, of course, when we had to relocate and work with the county of Kauai, when all those birds were near the airport, you remember? Mm-hmm. And that um, Kauai High School, the only school that couldn't have night football, is because the birds were a problem. So that's as far uh, I'm not surprised that they found new nesting grounds. They have just put out a, a RFP for you know a contractor to deal with the 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 birds yeah that issue with the birds is just another thing on the list you know now that the uh the completion of this project is pushed back even longer yeah yeah, yeah, is the maintenance you know how do you deal with that that's you know interesting too because if you look at a p3 project the rail the board they wouldn't have really much to do with having the developer you know do their due diligence and then the board all they had to do was work on all the other stuff that they can address but now that they want to do everything under the sun and not have a good qualified replacement of um, Andy Robbins, um, I'm not sure. I'm not familiar too much with Kahikina. I can see while well, she's trying to have transparency, but I don't know if she's even qualified because there's, um, if you look at the kinds of people that were brought in from the mainland, uh, Andy and the predecessors, they're all qualified people who had worked before with big rail projects. Well, I think Kaikina's strength, uh, some say, is you know her background with the city, with environmental services, with uh, the Department of Design and Construction. You know, DDC, she knows the city issues when yeah, it comes to the utilities. Yeah, but maybe she can be a deputy, but I'm not sure about being the number one. Another thing, too, and just to add, the board had issues with regards to quorum at meetings. Yes. I had a bill that, you know, the the president appoints two, sends names to be representing the Senate at the board, uh, and the speaker has two positions, and uh, they have no votes. Right. They're non-voting members. Yeah. So I had a bill to do that. Uh, and then the board also had somebody else do a House bill to lessen the number of votes. So they don't need four more votes. For quorum. So what they were doing, and they didn't accept, and this is the board now, they don't accept even representation from the legislature. And again, it goes back to me saying that the state has a lot uh, to do with the rail because we're 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 giving them much more money than than the city and we should have a say in how so why should we send representatives there that don't ha- that can't even vote on a project right but that bill didn't pass this session they killed it they yeah. killed it in the house yeah so going anyway, forward i mean we're, we're we are in a pickle yeah we're in a pickle i guess that's another obstacle that's in the way of the rail, the board and the rail. I don't think that the legislature can do much because we're in dire straits ourselves with funding. So I I don't think there's gonna be much that we can give in other personal contributions from the state other than what the TAT. I doubt it if we're we're gonna even be able to increase the number, the amount of uh, monies that we give to the to the real or even just extend it well the extension you know they'll probably eventually come in to extend but they got a long ways more yes we have been hearing from senator lorraine annoy she's the vice chair of the senate transportation committee her thoughts on how to move forward with the beleaguered rail project
We continue to talk rail on today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Marcel Henri on the line today. Good morning, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. Good to be here. So you got wind of a letter that one of the city council members uh, sent to Hart. Tell us about that. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, piggybacking off some interesting comments from Senator Inoue, who's also a been a, a rail supporter over the years. Uh, this was a letter recently sent uh, by Councilman Calvin Say, who recently uh, took that seat representing uh, the Manoa area. And he sent this to Lori Kahikina, the Hart Interim Director. And it's basically a letter that's that's calling for a, a quote-unquote robust discussion of other options, if any, that might be palatable to the FTA uh, for how to approach rail past Middle Street, given the uh, the massive $3.6 billion budget shortfall that it, fa- that it faces. And, you know, uh, Councilman Say uh, identifies himself as a, you know, a, a longtime rail supporter. Uh, so I guess why this, this letter was kind of interesting uh, to me as a reporter is it, it really is starting to show that you're you're hearing from people who who have expressed their support for the project, not just a lot of the uh, you know the very vocal critics out there who've who've really kind of opposed it and and been critical of of moves at at various junctures, but now even you know it's it's you're kind of crossing into this new territory. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, a lot of folks were you know lockstep right uh, around rail. They were circling the wagons, and now it seems to be uh, there's some cracks that are appearing. Like you know, what did we just do with the with canceling that uh, triple P contract, and what does this mean going forward? So lots of folks are asking questions. Yeah, and a lot of the you know the you described the, the lockstep uh, that had to do with the FTA, and people would point to the FTA and say, look. If we change this project in, in any way, we're really opening ourselves up to a lot of risk as far as the $1.55 billion that the FTA has pledged towards Honolulu Rail. It's already uh, provided about half of that amount, and we could certainly lose the remaining half, which hasn't been shelled out in six years. Uh, and we could even be on the, the hook to pay back some of it. Uh, but, you know, Say and uh, other folks have pointed to language that the FTA has used in previous uh, reports and letters, uh, particularly in 2016, that seem to indicate a little flexibility to consider options. And that was back in a previous budget crisis when, when the, the project was last facing a major budget shortfall. Um, I reached out to the FTA last week. And they did express that, you know, they're, they're prepared to dis, to look at other, you know, any and all options to deal with the latest uh, schedule and budget delay. So there does seem to be some indication of some flexibility, at least, if you're kind of reading the tea leaves with the FTA. Right. And there's a list of, what, some 27 alternatives uh, that were listed in this uh, report or this matrix uh, and that was uh, released publicly through the what Grassroot Institute of Hawaii, right? They had requested that uh, in a public records right. request. Yeah, so this was a list. Um, it had been referenced in Hart meetings going back at least to February that it existed. And there was a discussion, ongoing discussion really, across several meetings with the board over whether or not to actually uh, disseminate this, uh, make it public. Um, some of the board members were, were saying, hey, look, the, the public needs to see what Hart is looking at internally. And other board members were saying, uh, no, this this needs to stay internal. Not everything needs to be made public. And the basis of that seemed to be their obligations to the FTA under that same uh, federal $1.55 billion agreement. Their the concerns that if we even talk about what we might do other than what we've agreed to do, that you know that could that could cause some some issues uh, with the FTA, but it was eventually released, and it looked at a lot of different options, big and small. Uh, you know, stopping at Middle Street, going to bus rapid transit is certainly one of them. Uh, also, you know, converting to uh, at street grade, uh, you know, street level past Middle Street, things that have been discussed before. Uh, but it also included something like a, a a people mover beyond Middle Street. 
uh, things like changing the route to Nimitz, uh, tunneling to Ala Moana or, or even to UH Manoa. Generally, Hart found a lot more cons than pros to a lot of these alternatives, but in any case, it was finally made public. Right, and there's a, a lot of uh, focus now you know, on Middle Street, right, because uh, City Council member Heidi Sunyoshi introduced that rezo last month. I know she was expecting that it would be scheduled uh, in May, but uh, you know, maybe this month. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, it's, if, if anything, you're seeing Say saying, look, we have to uh, have a robust discussion, and she has introduced that, that measure, that resolution, so who knows? Uh, yeah. Maybe they'll, they'll start getting some, motive, some momentum there. Right, so let's talk about it some more. <laughs> but thanks so much, Marcel. Sure thing, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Honoré with today's Reality Check. To read his rail stories, visit civilbeat.org. Support for the conversation comes from YWCA of Kauai, supporting the Kauai Pride Parade, featuring art and live music, welcoming decorated vehicles for the drive-through experience. This Saturday, 9 to 10:30 a.m. YWCAKauai.org. ExxonMobil shareholders have elected two board members backed by activist investors. The climate change people, this is the first battle they've won against a big oil company. And it's a warning to other companies that play a big part in climate change. Corporations, climate, and activist investors. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. This morning, we take a closer look at a court decision to force a contested case hearing over a water rights case on Maui. HBR reporter Kuve Hirishi joins us in studio this morning. Hi there. Good <laughs> morning, Catherine. The latest development really in this court battle or legal battle over temporary water permits in East Maui. So these are revocable permits uh, that last about a year and allow um, folks to divert water away from the stream. In this case, uh, we're talking about four uh, revocable permits held by Alexandra and Baldwin and its subsidiary East Maui irrigation uh, company. And so for folks on Maui, we're talking about water that goes to about 35,000 residents in upcountry Maui. The county depends on this system. Uh, the ag uh, development there in uh, Mahipono in central Maui also depends on water from this system. And the latest development came in the form of a court order um, calling for this new hearing in light of, of new evidence. So Alexandra Baldwin currently diverts or is legally allowed to divert up to 45 million gallons of water a day under these uh, permits. And what First Circuit Court Judge Jeffrey Crabtree uh, in his interim decision last week had said is new evidence arose that maybe uh, would um, call for a re-examination of whether or not this is the amount of water that should be taken under these permits. And this new information includes recent reports by EMI or East Maui Irrigation showing that uh, the need of water was actually about 20 million gallons of water a day uh, uh, less than uh, that 45. And also a recommendation from DLNR's staff uh, to restore four of these streams that are part of of these are that are covered under these permits and so uh, this information came about since these permits were renewed back in November 
and now uh, the court wants to re-examine that and for folks, uh, for advocates including uh, Huelo resident uh, Lucien Dene, who's chair of the Sierra Club on Maui, uh, she says, you know, this is a chance for us to bring this information and really scrutinize and interrogate uh, whether or not this is the right amount of water uh, to take away from these streams. So this court decision by the judge means simply that our communities here, the East Maui communities between Kakipi Gulch and where the Moku ends out in Oopuula, Makaiva area, that we will have a chance to tell the story of our streams and their lives and the people who live here and their needs and uh, how streams are used by our visitors and our residents. All of this will be something that gets put on the table and then our land board can make an informed decision on who gets to share what. And right now, none of those facts are on the table, so there's no way they can make an informed decision. And that really echoes what uh, Judge Crabtree had had mentioned, is that the Sierra Club initially had requested a contested case hearing on this. Uh, The Board of Land and Natural Resources uh, did deny that request, saying we've we're going through all these steps already. A lot of this information is already out there, uh, but this is sort of a um, Judge Crabtree himself in in his decision had said, you know, this was a violation of, of Sierra Club's uh, due process rights and that we should look at this uh, once again. Now, the urgency of the matter is that the these temporary water permits technically um, expire at the end of this month. And so uh, Judge Crabtree had mentioned that he is, if nothing gets done, uh, he is prepared to revoke these permits. And what that means is really up in the air right now. I think there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Um, But paying attention to really uh, what role this issue plays in sort of the larger context, right, the larger issues of water rights on Maui um, will be interesting. Yeah, if I recall, there was a lot of this back and forth because those permits were just getting re-upped and they were saying, wait a minute, things have changed. You know, we don't have sugar anymore, which was the big user of the water. Exactly. These temporary water permits versus a water lease has been really a a hard, uh, difficult and complicated matter to take up. It is something that Alexander Baldwin uh, is going through and a lot of our other uh, water uh, holders of water revocable permits across the state is you're going to have to go in and figure out how much this water is worth, go through an uh, environmental assessment uh, process, something that's taken a long time. Uh, but in the interim, what's happened is, yes, this renewal of the uh, annual renewal of these revocable permits. So uh, really what's try- what they're trying to do is make sure that the water doesn't shut off uh, while at the same time ensuring that the environmental uh, impacts of this take is something that's manageable for uh, the ecology, but also the residents. Yeah, I think they're concerned that because they don't want, I think, uh, on one side you've got a group that doesn't want the water to go to development. They want to s- keep it in ag, uh, smaller ag, I guess. Right, with Mahipono and everything that's uh, going on there, that really is uh, sort of the debate. Uh, but the courts have, have really, you know, uh, done a good job of weighing uh, all of this out. And I think we're seeing that uh, in this sort of last minute decision to say we've got new evidence. Let's look at this one more time to make sure we're doing this right. It's kind of a flashback to uh, Hohunua on the Big oh, Island yes. where the courts are saying go back to the PUC <laughs> and, and have a fair hearing and, and hash it out. So. Yes, let's make sure all the information is on the table before we make this, these decisions. And so we should have a development in this uh, matter within the next week or so. All right. Okay. We know you'll be tracking it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks so much, Kuve. Mahalo. That was HBR's Kuve Hirishi. To read her story on the Maui case, head to hawaiipublicradio.org.
The East-West Center is winding up a two-day virtual meeting of Pacific Island leaders. Noticeably absent is Samoa. It's understandable, though, because there is a political standoff in Samoa. It is Prime Minister-elect Fiamme Naomi Mata'afa versus the long-ruling Prime Minister Tuila'epa Mali'ailinga'oe. To help us get up to speed on the resolution of a long list of legal challenges, we reached out to Ken Iono. He's a longtime broadcaster with Radio Samoa, a 24-7 Pacific network. He's also a broadcaster with Samoa International News and host of a Samoan show at KNDI here in Honolulu. Here's Ken. They've had several lawsuits, but the uh, last one, it was um, the HRPP, uh, Human Rights Protection Party, which is the ruling party, and the Attorney General teamed up to ask uh, the Chief Justice who recused himself from all the cases that are coming up, and uh, they lost that one. The latest one, which is has the final one, it seems to be the final one. You never know these things, and that is the Court of Appeal in Samoa has ruled that the Electoral Commissioner cannot uh, appoint a um, extra woman for Human Rights Protection Party until all the litigations have uh, exhausted and finished. And that will take um, probably a couple of weeks or even months. They're supposed to convene parliament as soon as possible. That was uh, also made very clear by the court. And But it's, uh, it's very tough when the current uh, caretaker prime minister and his administration don't want to uh, give the keys to the to the new prime minister. <laughs> and uh, you have talked to both parties. Yes. Do you think there'll be any way for the the outgoing prime minister to save face, given what's transpired? I think that's the the stage that they're at right now. I think the prime minister is trying to, um, you know, kind of a um, form a exit strategy to save face and. Um, I hope the, the, the new party, too, you know, goes along because the current caretaker prime minister has been a prime minister for 20 years. He has several high chief titles, but, um, you know, for our purpose, I wanted to make it short. <laughs> and so then the prime minister-elect, Fiamme Naomi Mata'afa. <laughs> She's in a very awkward position. Not only awkward position, but in Samoa, they prefer to iron things out in a cultural way. You know, no violence. They always talk about it. You know, Samoa used to settle things, you know, with um, with war and battles. But, um, you know, now they don't want to do that anymore. They wanted to um, settle it in the court, which is funny. <laughs> it, it takes a long time to do that. And um, and most of these laws, you know, comes out of uh, obsolete rules and, and uh, institutions from the Westminster parliamentarian system. And I've always also uh, advocated for a while that uh, Samoa should, you know, get rid of all that old British system and go into a more modern uh, system that uh, applies to the Samoan culture and also, you know, the way it's modernized nowadays. Samoa uh, was the first Polynesian and Pacific nation to regain its independence from colonizers in 1962. And so historically, Samoans have, you know, very independent-minded, uh, you know, people. They don't want outside people to rule. But um, as you said, it's very complicated. But in some ways, you know, it's, it's, a, it's very simple. Um, uh, the uh, Patutua... Patasi uh, Samoa, which is uh, the new party for FAST, won, won the election. And uh, the recent, the most recent, which was yesterday, um, decision by the courts also means that the FAST party has won 26, and the Human Rights Protection Party is 25. So one more um, member of parliament. So FAST has won. The, the caretaker prime minister is dragging his feet. And... Um, when you rule, you know, any country for 40 years, you know, you have a lot of people who are supporting you or support, you know, what you're doing. Yeah, it's, uh, because there are many other people who are benefiting from a lot of other corruptions that have been going on in Samoa for a long time. And they don't want to, uh, you know, let go of the power and, and the perks they've had, you know, for a long time. Because if, if, 
If you were 20 years old when HRPC came into party, you are 60 years old now. So it's a, if you look at it that way, most of the people who are living and most of the people who are CEOs and running businesses in Samoa, they have only one uh, party that has been ruling Samoa, you know. But of course, you know, the prime minister always says, well, it's a democratic system, you know. They don't get there by, you know, uh, by force. You know, it's an election. And, and he's right in that way. But, um, you know, but, you know, time is come and change, and, uh, and a lot of that change come about through um, overseas Samoans on social media. It reminds me of the incident in Tunisia and Egypt, you know, when social media uh, play a critical role in, um, uh, in uh, uh, regime change um, and, um, you know, democratizing, you know, uh, governments. Well, there are some that just look to the uh, past elections here in the U.S., you know, and how social media was involved in that and the and the concern uh, from the sitting administration that, you know, the election was rigged and, and the siege on the Capitol that followed. In, in some ways, it's it's similar. Yeah, and um, the uh, caretaker and the um, HRPP party have always, you know, in the past couple of months, in, in fact, last year, always claimed overseas Samoans and social media as... Um, creating a lot of turmoil in the country, but it's not. It's really people outside who are not under the spell or the, um, the iron fist governing of the uh, government there, you know, can independently say what they can say. And um, they see a lot of stuff happening because um, most of these transactions, especially assistance from overseas like China, IMF, International Monetary Fund, World Bank, ADP, which is Asian Development Bank, so public knowledge and public um, information. And they see what's going on, and um, that's why, you know, a lot of this um, stuff on social media is, is going, and it's, um, I think, for, for the best. Uh, there are a lot of bad stuff who are happening in, in social media, just like in any other country. But um, for the most part, I think, you know, the, the more knowledge that people have, the, the better it is. And that doesn't mean that there's no misinformation. Part of our media partners, which is, you know, working 24-7, we all share all these information among ourselves. Uh, I've been building a, uh, a media network since 1986-87 in radio, newspaper, and TV, so that not only we can upgrade but also um, help inform our people because uh, most of the Samoans um, overseas uh, don't know what's going on in Samoa. But um, recently, last last Sunday, uh, the prime minister was there, and he actually took the prime minister to task, basically saying you should step down because there's so much corruption in your government, which was very interesting to have a leader of a church say those things in Samoa or anywhere else. You know, looking in perspective, looking at what also the uh, the, the Pope in the Vatican have, have also stood for, it's not surprising. Or I'm not surprised by it because mainly what uh, the Archbishop in Samoa is standing for is social justice and uh, looking out for the poor people. So Samoa is becoming, you know, just like the U.S., a lot of rich people and a lot of uh, poor people and, uh, mm. and, uh, and very few people who own businesses and rich. But, you know, there's also an argument against that because um, if you talk to Samoans, well, every Samoan owns land in Samoa right. and they can build a house. Not like in the U.S. where not many people own homes. That was broadcaster Ken Iono discussing the dynamics involved in resolving the constitutional crisis now playing out in Samoa. Iono hosts a Samoan show on KNDI three evenings a week on Samoan issues from 9.30 to midnight.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island-style lunch and Sunday brunch at the Homa Cafe, along with evening bar service on Fridays and Saturdays. Details at honolulumuseum.org. Karen Stipes never knew her mom. As a little girl, I remember praying and praying that she would come and get me. But her mom never came home. She disappeared when Karen was a baby. Nearly 50 years later, Karen begins to unravel some dark family secrets. It's a horrible feeling to feel like everybody knows something and nobody will tell you. On the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Mike Mark's Cafe. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute, made with recordings from the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to Honolulu's official bird, the Manu Oku. Manu Oku, also known as white terns or fairy terns, are a medium-sized native Hawaiian seabird that can also be found in many tropical and subtropical oceans throughout the world. They have black bills and their feathers are completely white, except for a black ring of feathers around their eyes, which makes their dark eyes look much bigger than they actually are. Like many other seabirds, they have long, narrow wings with pointed wingtips that allow them to effortlessly soar for hours or days over the ocean looking for food, which for them is primarily small fish and squid. Manu Oku translates to Bird of Ku, the god of war and prosperity in Hawaiian mythology. Seafarers and traditional Hawaiian navigators use Manu Oku as one of the best indicators of land, as these birds typically fly out to forage on the ocean in the early morning and return by nightfall. Manu Oku had become very rare by the middle of the last century in the main Hawaiian islands, but their populations have grown from just over a few birds in the 1960s to about 2,500 today. These birds don't bother with building nests. They simply lay a single egg directly into the fork of a tree branch, and the chick hatches after about a month of incubation. This may be one reason Manu Oku are doing better than many other seabirds in Hawaii that nest on the ground, making them easy prey to cats, mongoose, and rats. Interestingly, they have a special fondness for Honolulu, and they're one of the only native Hawaiian birds that can commonly be found soaring, nesting, and vocalizing in and around that city. In 2007, they were even named the official bird of Honolulu. So if you live in Honolulu and hear this outside your window, there's a Manuoku nearby. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to supporting the Hakalau Refuge and conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More on helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. I'm not sure it will ever look like Kapoho did three okay. plus years ago before this 2018 eruption because it was such a transformative eruption, not only in terms of the depth, but the breadth. What do you miss the most about Kapoho? Just a sense of place. Looking at old photos, there were, it was just a basic sense of place. That was Lono Lyman, manager of the Kapoho Land and Development Company and board member of the Kapoho Beach Community Association. The tiny coastal community on the Big Island was overrun by lava from the 2018 Kilauea Lower East Rift Zone eruption there three years ago this week. Over 700 homes were lost and many more residents displaced. So where do things stand now? The Conversations Russell Subiono spoke with Douglas Lay, Hawaii County's Disaster Recovery Officer, to find out. Currently, uh, we are in the process of designing the restoration of 
the roads that service the area, the public county roads, that is Kumukahi Lighthouse Road, as well as portions of Highway 137 uh, from that area, Four Corners, down to Isaac Holiday Beach Park. You know, simultaneously, uh, we are working on launching a volunteer housing bio program. We've received applications. The program kicked off on April 30th, and we're currently receiving applications for primary homes that were impacted by the 2010 eruption. You know, we estimate there's about 300 of them, and as of end of last week, we'd already received 240 applications for this voluntary buyout. And so it's, you know, this, this balance of assisting folks who still need support rebuilding their lives, whether they have a place where they are staying now, they bought a home, or even some residents that we've met who are um, houseless, living in their cars, staying with family, both in Hawaii and on the continent. A bio program is one solution. I think road restoration and you know working with the communities that were impacted by the eruption flow in Kapoho around their plans to restore and, and return is that balance that we've been really focused on as a county. So it does sound like the primary objective is helping people either get back into a home or find some sort of alternate residence until until a decision can be made about whether they can get back into their home or rebuild their home. That's right. Um, you know, I think across the, the communities that were impacted um, by the eruption, in particular in the Kapoho area, I think people are, at a, are across a continuum, right? Um, mm-hmm. Some folks are very, it's very clear for them whether it was a primary home or a second home, that they are interested in a buyout. We actually released survey data just late last week from a survey we completed in February and March to really gauge uh, what people's interests are among the different options. A buyout, returning for agriculture, returning for residential use, or just retaining the land but choosing not to return. And what we saw was folks are still really weighing their options. So even though there was strong interest in a buyout, you know, a proportion of the folks who articulated interest in a buyout were also interested in returning or were still kind of considering their options. And I'd like to think that now that we have since launched our program, our buyout program, you know, people have an opportunity to really sink in on what the program may mean for them and whether this is a good option for them. At the same time, you know, we we know there are community members along the continuum who are looking to return and waiting for that that opportunity to do so. And so it's it's that, that balance. Yeah, uh, we do do. We did do a survey of um, the entire eruption area. Uh, essentially, sent uh, 1,275 paper surveys to all the individual property owners that were impacted. We also provided the survey online. We got 815 unique responses, and so the data presentation is about the overall sample. Some of those key questions that we asked in the survey. But we also took time to do breakouts across the specific areas that were impacted by the eruption you know, from vacation land to the United States and down uh, the Po'iki area as well. Just from your interaction with the community and from what you've seen through the survey, what are some of the biggest issues that Kapoho property owners are facing? It's hard to just pinpoint one because I think folks were impacted in different ways and have different visions for what their recovery looks like. So, you know, in terms of our work with with the the current board and a number of property owners, you know, there's strong interest in returning. At the same time, you know, when uh, we did our survey, so of the 115 respondents from the vacation land area, 84 respondents were interested in a buyout. And when we look at the neighboring Kapoho Beach Lots area, a similar kind of response, 114 total respondents, 95 are interested in a buyout. So, and that's why it's, it's really hard to pinpoint kind of where folks want to be. But for sure, uh, what we do know is that right now, uh, residents and property owners that were displaced by the eruption when Kapoho was covered by the 2018 eruption, that some folks have bought a home, they relocated, maybe they had insurance proceeds that they could help them to kind of rehouse themselves. We know that folks who were also farming in the area, like along the farm lots, you know, some have not been able to reestablish their farms. Uh, a hui of orchid farmers have organized a cooperative and moved kind of further uh, towards Keao to reestablish themselves. And so that's, an, you know, an exciting area of, of change. You know, they've been able to secure funding from the county and from other government sources to help them reestablish. And then, you know, there are... Uh, you know, for those of whom, you know, the Kapo area was their primary home, there are some who are facing housing insecurity, especially, you know, we've heard a lot from Kupuna, who have really had a, have had a hard time finding permanent housing. 
because, you know, the home was their home, right? And without that home and, and with their fixed income, it's been very challenging to secure more permanent housing since the eruption. So it is that broad range. And across the sample, you know, of the survey, 56% of respondents are currently on Hawaii Island. The remainder of the 44% are either in other parts of the state or many are also on the continent. Uh, some folks, I think, always had a primary home in the continent, and you know, Hawaii might have been their second home. But we also know that there are individuals who are off-island or out-of-state because you know where they could find safe shelter with family or friends was another home, right? And so you know, in, in terms of something like a conversation about a buyout, you know, for, for many, we've also heard that, you know, the buyout can mean closure, can mean moving on in terms of what they've lost. But for some, it also means being able to come back to Hawaii because, you know, that access to capital will help them reestablish themselves as part of their recovery. For those who are choosing not to do a buyout, is there any kind of estimation on when the, the lava will cool off enough that they can rebuild? So we work really closely with the Hawaii Volcano. Volcano Observatory as part of the USGS on that kind of those kind of questions. They've worked very closely with the community members too. You know, it's really hard to to pinpoint, you know, across that very broad lava delta, you know, this point is cool and ready safe to return and this point is not. The lava is quite thick out there and so one one aspect of it being very thick is that um, it is incredibly insulating, meaning that it will stay hot for a long time. But it's all another property of it being well insulating is that the heat will stay trapped for a long time, right? Um, relative to surface temperature above, there are cracks and crags and kind of areas where you can really tell heat is escaping rapidly from down below. And so, you know, one person's five-acre lot may be completely flat and, and stable without any kind of major shifts in, in ambient air temperature um, because of the cooling lava. And then the next-door neighbor may have some very hot spots. In different parts of the eruption, we have also seen that certain areas of the lava layer, the new ground, is much more brittle and kind of just less solid than other areas. And so... You know, we, you know, until we all have a chance, whether it be the scientists with the Hawaii Volcanoes Observatory, the county, and property owners have a chance to really get out there, it's very hard to say that, you know, this is safe to go and this is not safe to go. During some of the heavy rains we saw earlier this spring, there were pretty significant whiteout conditions along Highway 132, where it had to be closed for portions of two days. And that steam condition essentially is just the, the rainwater permeating the ground and boiling and coming back up. I think parts of the, the lava delta that represents beach lots in the Kapoho area, the newly accreted land kind of into the ocean, it was observed at least that some of those areas weren't as steamy as the area along 132. But, you know, it, it's very hard to make, to make plans when we're still collecting data and trying to understand what the future of the geological conditions holds. Is the county seeing an increase in trespassing or, or people reporting trespassing or maybe just tourists, you know, want driving down there to kind of get a, a view of what was once Kapoho? In the time before the COVID-19 pandemic, right, and, and when tourism stopped, you know, we did observe tourists hiking over the lava field and, and seeing the new coastline, the new Pebble Beach. We also knew know that residents who access that shoreline for fishing and for camping to care for also some of the some of the sensitive areas um, beyond the lava flow um, we're also going out there quite a bit since that time we have seen tourist um, activities diminish all right so kind of visitors n not not visiting that area per se but i think one part of that is also kind of the county and private property owners efforts to make that area especially the kumukahi lighthouse road where there are sensitive sites, not accessible to, to vehicles. You know, since some of these physical barriers are put in place, we have seen less access, even though we do still know of access. There's the, the access and trespassing to access the shoreline, essentially, at that Four Corners area where the lava flow is. But also, you know, when we restored Highway 132, you know, it's, this is the, the road that runs east to west, right? Um, and essentially Makai to the Kumukahi area. It, it, it causes the lava flow. It, it's for those who have not lived with eruptions and, and lava. It is a sight to behold, right? And so, I think that's also some of the challenge too, where visitors may see this lava flow area and kind of not fully connect or recognize that it is private property, right, on both sides of the public highway. That's another challenge. 
what do you see for Kapoho's future? And maybe, you know, 10 years, 20 years, is there a chance that the town will return to what, to what it was? What do you see for the future? From my perspective, not only from my role within the county, but also, you know, hearing from, learning from, and speaking with individuals who called the Kapoho area home prior to the eruption, I think that, like with all areas that are impacted by eruptions on our island, right, there nothing can be, be as it was. Yeah. Right. The strong interest in the bio program is one indicator of that. But also, I don't know if the county and our and our residents are are at a place where where we fully know what it means to to rebuild on the lava field anywhere from this eruption, not just kind of in the Kapoho area. And so I think that we have to really approach the questions from understanding the health and safety considerations of population and homes still being in this area of, of high hazard. You know, this eruption did not change that, but it will be different, right? So even yeah. even if folks do return, that it will be a different kind of scale. There will be county-owned property as part of the buyout program. And, you know, I think as we have a clearer sense over the next year to year and a half about participation in the buyout, we will know what future uses of these lands would be, including, you know, coordination with local HOAs, you know, stewardship organizations, volunteers around managing those properties. We're just starting to, to unpack what the future could hold. That was Hawaii County's Disaster Recovery Officer, Douglas Lay, talking with our Russell Subiono about the state of the Kapoho area on the Big Island. To see the survey results released by Hawaii County just this past week, go to the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. We are all pal for the day, but up tomorrow we talk aquaculture, how far we have come and how far we have to go. Got a story you want to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email works too, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You want to listen back to something you heard? Find our archive shows on the conversation page of our newly updated website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Or listen on the free HPR mobile app. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.